Having a Gas is the podcast that talks the great and the good of the creative industries, and in particular finds out what makes great music for film, for TV, for commercials, for dancing to, for cooking to, for f***ing to, and more. Today I'm having another gas with Paul Burke. Paul was one of my favourite guests in the first series of Having a Gas, and we didn't get quite enough information about his illustrious career as a Soho DJ, so Paul chimed in in January to tell me all about that. So I talk about being a DJ? Well, about what it's like being, being a DJ in the 80s and 90s and how it, you, this is this bit got me. It teaches you practically everything you need to know about consumer behaviour. What the hell does that mean? It does. I mean, uh, uh, you are, you are, I suppose, as the DJ. I'm not talking about working as a DJ in clubs. I've done both. I've, done, I've worked in clubs all over London and I've also done the old weddings, bar mitzvahs and 21st and that. Let me tell you, there is far more skill involved in the latter uh why because, is that is it because in the clubs they just take anything or yeah in the clubs they, they, they've gone out to dance at the wedding they've gone to a wedding at which you know it wouldn't be unexpected to them to have a dance later but you really have to you really have to work on them to get them going so you are um a product or you and your music are a product and you've got to on the spot not knowing any of these consumers from Adam, we well, might sort you know, uh, work out how to advertise your product, i.e., you, or if, if you want to make the product, the end product is a good night out, how you're going to create that there and then while they're watching you. So, you know, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it, it is difficult. I mean, <laughs> you, uh, uh, I mean they, they, were the one, they were the ones I did most, uh, but. It, it's a it's a blessing and a curse because the worst thing that used to happen if I was doing a wedding uh, or a twenty first or something is that people would say, "Oh, it's all right, you'll know everyone." You think, "Oh, it's even worse," because um, otherwise, I might have just been a guest. Yeah, and yeah. They, I think you said this last time. It's like yeah. when you're the so so it's a kind of be careful what you wish for for DJs. Yeah, yeah. And as you know, I just got a pair of what you would probably see as basically toy decks because toy there's decks. no there's no no stylus or anything. Yeah. There's no listening to cue it up. You've got buttons that can match the yeah, beats yeah. together. So it's but be careful what you wish for because if everyone knows you as a DJ, you never get to have a party again. You're always no the DJ. exactly. And you also think if I was a cleaning contractor, would you um say look come to my will you bring in mop and bucket and clear. <laughs> <laughs> afterwards <laughs> but it was pretty much the same thing and and even when you're doing the um playing the records and they're all dancing that's the good bit they don't remember the bit at the end where you have to sort of you know get it i mean i i, I, I think no i was onto you there as someone who was once a touring drummer I, I got the pain in your eyes of oh the bit after the party you have to pack down your shit yeah. you have to carry the heavy crap everywhere like. and, it's, and and did you notice people uh, when you arrived would always um help you in with the speakers and the records. They never used to help you out. You know, they were pissed or they'd forgotten, you know. My own, my, my own band used to leave and go and have cigarettes and, you know, chat to everyone while I was on the stage taking my cymbals off. And oh, Of course, they've only got one plug, the guitar. Yeah, it's literally that, done. Singer drops the mic, looks cool. I'm going to send you a thing about why the drummer is the most important thing in a band, something that, that I, I saw on Radio 3. The other thing I always used to do is I was always, when I was DJing at a party, always... 10, 12 minutes late. Because if you turned up on time, they were, they, I don't know, they weren't grateful enough. And happiness is gratitude. If you left it more than 10 minutes, you piss them off and quite rightly. But um, 
if you arrive, say, say you said, yeah, I'll, I'll see you at seven, you, and, and you came through the doors, always coming backwards with me, crates of records, uh, about 10 bucks. Oh, my God, thank, thank God you're here. And they really appreciated you. The other thing you could always tell from consumer behaviour is if the bloke came up early, and I, I don't think he even realised he was doing this. Uh, so you just set up and just started. You go, here, mate, how much is it? And stick, uh, there's your money, because I'm going to be pissed later. Uh, if, he, if they paid you early, the party always went well. Uh, it was almost like they took it seriously and they paid you up front. Whereas if you had to, as, uh, you know, having packed all the gear away, looking around for the person who actually pays you. I mean, you always got paid. I was going to take a check. Uh, so it was all those things that people, people tend to forget. Um, I mean, I got my first decks because I couldn't afford the rent on my flat. Uh, I, I, I was a junior copywriter. I didn't have any money. I could afford it, but I couldn't really afford to live. So, uh, I, I mean, technically, always, always, um, your decks should always be mono. Never, never have them in stereo because mono makes a work. This is so interesting for the rest of the advertising. <laughs> mono makes a sort of wall of sound. And also, I mean, the Beatles are the best example or the worst example of this. Um, if uh, Beatles in, in stereo, it's completely um, vocal out of one speaker, completely instrumental out of the other. So if you blew a channel out, which you did sometimes, uh, DJing too loud and too hard, uh, and one blew out, if it was mono, it would just be the same but not as loud. But that you just, you'd lose one. Even if they didn't blow out, uh, in a car or at home, your speakers are actually quite close together. Whereas in a hall, you could have long, long leads. So the speakers are miles apart. So if you're on one side, you're dancing on, you can only hear off of it if it's stereo. Whereas if yeah. it's mono, you can hear both. Well, that's the, um, that's the consequence of the sins of the engineers who first were experimenting with, with stereo mixing because it was kind of seen as a weird novelty. You know, you can put things on different yeah. speakers and no one was really preparing for a future in which everyone was wearing headphones. So mm. the, the experience of listening to Bohemian Rhapsody is, is actually quite disorienting and unpleasant, you know, when you've got yeah. Mamma Mia, Mamma Mia. Yeah, 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 stop it. Leave me alone. Um, <laughs> and the other thing, with the leads, I was just thinking, um, I remember someone told me this, it's so true, is they get tangled up. So I always had one black one and one red one, so you could see them and, and undo them. And, and I just uh, started, off, started off doing that. And it's, it's a skill that isn't really there anymore because now people will just create a, a, a banging set. A set, yeah. You a can even set. just pre-record it. Yeah, you, you've no idea what the people... Again, it's consumer behaviour. It's just... Um, it's like doing literally no research into an ad or who's going to buy it. We're just going to put this ad on. Yeah. But we, we, we don't know anything. We don't know anything. So the first thing you do, I'd always, um, I just, I'd always have, I, I kept it quite tight. I'd have about 500 singles and about 50 albums, which actually isn't very much. And they were my playing out boxes. And gradually some would be a bit naff or they're a bit old. So you uh, take them out and replace them with other ones. But I always had like, a very broad selection because I did not know um, really who, who was going to be there. And, and what they're going to like. And, and you have to keep trying things out. You know, you're building it over time. And, and there's other things that I, I do remember. If you got to a place, and, and it was usually the case, the bar was at the back of the hall or along the side. Yeah, fine, lovely. Very often the bar was in another room. And 
and you were fucked <laughs> because you'd stand there from seven o'clock. They'd all be in the bar till about 11. They'd come piling out for a dance all pissed and then have a go at you because you had to finish at midnight. You know, it, it, but that used to happen all the time. Is that, that feeding into your idea of why it eventually puts you off the human race and you have yeah, to hang no, your it, it, it does after all. I mean, there were some good ones. Um, I'm, oh, there were so many good ones. The, my favourite one, I think, was I turned up to this wedding. It was down in South London and I could see them in there. And there were hundreds. I think it, it was... It, I think they were... In fact, I know they were. They were members of the travelling community and those people do like a party. And I could see them. I thought, great, massive hall, hundreds of people. But there was another hall. And my wedding, the wedding I was doing, was the other hall. And it was quite quiet. And, uh, you know, I'm standing there for about seven, half seven, eight, you know. And the bride and groom were sort of a little bit like this. And, you know, everyone was quite shy and reserved. And uh, I thought, Jesus, it's awful. Yeah, that's presumably the hardest thing because you have to stand there in front yeah. of everyone. Yeah, you stand exposed. there in front of everyone. Uh, the only people who get it worse now, I think, and I feel for them terribly, is when you see a stand-up who <gasps> just isn't doing very well. That's mm. worse, but it's a similar feeling. You're just sort of standing there and nothing's happening. And the bride and groom. And your most popular request at weddings is, oh, could you turn it down a bit, please? Uh, because the other thing is, they sometimes have a point in that I, I'm, I'm there behind the decks and the speakers, I'm behind the speakers. Pointing that way, yeah. Yeah, and sometimes when you walk around, you think, bloody hell, it is loud. So, um, can you turn it around a bit, please? And about half eight, a bloke comes running up the stairs. He goes, mate, mate. And this was before we had mobile phones. Mate, it's my brother's wedding down, downstairs. He's a, the gypsy family, travelling family. Um, DJ ain't turned up. And I said, okay, what? He goes, well, I've had an idea. Um, could you bring your wedding down to our wedding? And I went, well, I, I did, I'd have to ask the bride and groom. So I went, look, um, went downstairs. And, and of course they went, oh, oh yeah, it's all right then. So I said, ladies and gentlemen, we've got a little change of plan. We're going downstairs for one big wedding. Well, the moment I plugged in downstairs, they're all up and dancing. And it was fa- but the best thing of all, and they, they probably told people about this so many times, the actual bride and groom, whose names I can't remember, they had a fantastic wedding that they would never have had upstairs. Because they I, mixed it together. Yeah, I, I had them hoisted up and dancing around, and I'll put on, you know, Grease Summer, Love and have, and have them in the middle and then do the carnival is over, the seekers at the end and put them through, you know, did all that. And, they, and the best man who, who got me up there uh, was so drunk and so grateful. I can't imagine how much money he gave me, but I remember it was a, like a brick of notes. And it was all, <laughs> it, it might as well have come out of a suitcase because it was all brand new, unused notes. It, no, that was, you know, there were lo- loads of those sort of things. Um, you, usually they were okay. But there was, there was quite often criminals around. I remember I was DJing at a club. And I'm even now frightened to say the name of this um, notorious North London crime family. Let's just call them the Smiths. And, and I just got this thing. Bloke comes up to me and goes, um, uh, Billy Smith wants to see you. And Billy Smith was like the worst of the Smith family. They weren't called the Smiths. Billy Smith was like, oh, Christ, what have I? He goes, nothing to worry about, son. He's over in the corner, just, just wants a little word. So when the other DJ went on, I went down to see Billy Smith. He goes, really like the music you're playing? 
um, wonder if you'd like to come work for us. I thought, oh my God, no. <laughs> goes, um, he says, you know, we've got this, he had this snooker club. I can't remember what it was called. Something like, you know, I don't know what it was called, Boomers or something. We've got this snooker club, yeah. Yeah, I know about your snooker club. <laughs> so, um, we're going to turn it into a nightclub. It's going to be the classiest place in, you know, and we want you to open it. And you think, shit. There's no, you can't get away. You can't get away from the Smith. You know, once, just give us your number, we'll be in touch. So I had to give the Smiths my number. And I was just shitting myself for a couple of weeks. And then I know it's an awful thing to say, but as luck would have it, somebody got shot dead <laughs> at their snooker club. <laughs> and their license got revoked and I never heard from that family again. Uh, but you, you, you have to be careful, particularly with the rave scene. I got, I really got out of that because, um, I didn't really get into it. You know, if, if there's cash, drugs and expensive equipment involved, these people aren't very far behind, but all this time I'm, I'm saying this, I'm working in advertising. So I was never serious about being a DJ. It was always um, it was always nothing more than a hobby to me, you know, like people, because back then nobody really had there was no such thing, you know, unless you were Tony Blackburn and on the radio, there was no such thing really as a full time DJ. Like the time when a DJ was like a boutique pursuit, as opposed to now, where yeah. I mean, I went over to someone's house uh, before the lockdown, and they were like, "Oh yeah, I've just got some DJ decks." I was like, well, "You don't listen to music or even take it." You know, I'm not claiming music. I'm just saying it's quite clearly not a part... It would be like me getting a football kit. No, no, exactly, yeah. Because uh, it was it was, and it was and a hobby, you know, we've said this before, that you really had to pursue. You had to go and find... Yeah, and expensive, and find the music. And uh, sometimes, you know, I, I didn't really do it that much. Um, I, I didn't... I wasn't really as into it as, as a lot of the more famous DJs uh, because they, they, they want all the latest imports. And imports... 12-inch single was about a fiver 30-odd years ago. It's a lot of money for one so, track. Do you think there's a really, there's a big part of that experience that will not translate to people of my age and younger who, uh, if you're not subscribed to some premium streaming service where you could get any music you want, yeah. you will go on YouTube and get any music yeah, you yeah. want. Yeah, um, you, you'd, I mean, even working in advertising, if we uh, wanted some music, uh, there was this brilliant place in... Um, in Croydon called Beano's and when we were at BNP DDP you know, we had a, an account there because they usually had they had the most like thousands and thousands of singles and that's what you had to do you had to send a bike down to Beano's and quite often um, you'd get it you'd get it back and put it on the turntable if it actually it's a bit shit <laughs> it's not as good as I remember it but now you can just call it up and in the same way I mean people they, they could get really like uh the old soul and hip-hop records that were um, cut in New York, the grooves were deeper. So there was a uh, more vibration that went through the stylus, so they sounded big. And 12-inch singles, it's just quite simply their grooves were further apart, so they sounded better. Uh, but again, on my mono decks. <laughs> yeah, ultimately, <laughs> yeah. Um, I didn't really, uh, I didn't really do much. It, it, was, it was just simply, it was simply a hobby, you know. I mean, I loved it. I remember working, I used to work at a place called um, The Beat Room. That's the same time I had a residency, Friday night thing. And I called it Youth Club Disco because I wanted to um, recreate that atmosphere of just going to the disco. Yeah. Because m most DJs back then, they were either really, really serious with the deep cut 12-inch imports and they were absolutely into it and that was, it was their lives. 
or it was a fat twat in a Hawaiian shirt going, Aga, do, do, do. And most people wanted something in the middle. So I just, I just used to do that. And I had a residency in this club, and there was this guy. We used to, we used to do hen nights. <laughs> this guy used to come in, and he was a mild-mannered accountant, and he came from Rainer's Lane. I always remember, it was between Harrow and Pinner, out on the Met Line. Very nice bloke, and he sort of spoke like this. And he had the most massive penis. <laughs> but it was so wasted on him. Um, and the first time he came, he goes, and they said, Dr. Dong is coming in. I, was expe- I don't know, I was expecting some sort of muscly... Go- oh, hello. <laughs> uh, and he wore a white coat. And then he'd, he'd slip his pants down. And he's gigantic. It was just like, to him, and I suppose that's all it is. It's just like having a big nose or being tall. It's just... It was enormous. And he just used to, um, uh, he goes, I just sw- swing it around a bit and <laughs> dance around. It, I suppose it, looking at it, it was quite sad. And then he'd go home <laughs> to his wife and kids, you know. Dr. Dong. That's mad. Did you say that was an accountant? Yeah, he, he worked in, because um, he used to meet all sorts of people in the West End. I mean, the other thing I used to do to my shame is um, I used to do what was called gentlemen's evenings. And oh, they were disgusting. Um, Where and they that? were always people in suits. They were sort of surveyors or accountants and that. And they'd have a gentleman's evening. And I'd just play the records in this club. And they'd have a blue comic. <laughs> you don't have any A blue comic just telling filthy jokes. And then they'd have um, strippers. And they weren't even strippers. They, they were prostitutes. And the more, because they told me they were, so the more money that went in the hat, the more they would do. <laughs> Uh, I always remember, incidentally, one um, one of the working girls said to me, uh, "The worst thing for a girl, for a uh, a sex worker, as they're called now, a sex worker to get is a uh, is a good looking guy. Because if an ugly bloke turns up, you think, mm, well, you know, it's obvious why he's here. You know, he's not, what, what you can do. But if a good looking bloke turns up, you think, what do you want? Why? You know, you're you're a nice looking bloke." Uh, this is going to be horrible. This is going to be demeaning. This is going to be nasty. Why? Yeah, and, and she said it nearly always was. It, it was things that a, you know a wife or a girlfriend would not do. Right. Okay. That's interesting. That. Yeah. And I was so trying to put it together. I was like, "What's the?" Yeah. She said no, and he said it was always. And she said, "You've asked any girl. Uh, there's two guys that you know want your trade. Um, an ugly bloke with a good-looking one. They'd normally prefer the ugly one." Because that would just be fairly straightforward. Said so it was always, yeah. What are you doing here? There's a, re- yeah. Mm. <laughs> so yeah. Again, uh, consumer behaviour. <laughs> Who'd have thought that it was, um, you know, counterintuitive? But I always it, think. Uh, I think at the moment everyone has a Netflix series in them. You know, this is yeah. yours. No, uh, yeah, yeah. Prostitution's a funny one, isn't it? Uh, and the other thing she said was, um, you know, you know a lot of sex workers. I said, I don't know any. She goes, trust me, you do. Yeah, because so, yeah. well, you're a DJ <laughs> you know, in general. There's people, there's, um, you know, housewives doing it, all, you know, doing it all the time. There's, of course there are. You know, again, you think, oh, you know, never really occurred to me. But um, again, I was sort of innocent with it because I didn't really want to, um, advertising and being a writer was the thing I wanted to do. So I just did it as a hobby and didn't really... I was only, I mean, you know, I, I, was, I was knee deep in cocaine and hookers. 
And I, I really wasn't interested in anything. Because after all, you realise you can be the elephant man. If you're a DJ in a West End nightclub, people will chuck themselves at you. Uh, and then, <laughs> first couple of times, I thought it was because I was handsome, but it's not, nothing to do with it, you know. So but, why uh, is that? What's the allure of the DJ? I think there's a power. I think there's a power, if you're good at it. Um, if I was doing a gig, um, oh, I really mean this, and I think it's, it's not because I'm any good, it's because... Um, it's your duty to do it. There's no doubt who's in charge of this room. Yeah. Um, I've got, you know, 300 watts of uh, amp. I've got big speakers. I've got records. I didn't do all the chat. You know, I might. Weddings, you tend to do a bit more, you know, get people out. Uh, so you're in charge. And so there's, and in a nightclub, even more so, because uh, they have really, you know, the fact that you've got a residency in a club is a bit more impressive to your average punter than you happen to be doing the de- uh, disco at that, that, um, those people's weddings that night. Yeah. But, um, and I, I just always remember there was a girl, there was a girl on reception, I won't name her, and she was on reception. Reception, she was on the door sort of, uh, of a club I worked in in Soho, and she was gorgeous, um, but sort of really tarty gorgeous, like, like that long, blonde, like Kim Bassinger hair, big red lips and low-cut top. and But she seemed really nice, and I thought she was just gorgeous. So I thought she was a slag, and she thought I was a tosser, because so I would come in with um, with me records, you know, and sort of own the room, as you have to do in a club like that. And 30 years later, I'm in Kensington High Street, and I just heard someone go, Paul? And I turned around, and it was her, you know, much older now, sort of 50-odd now. Um, and <laughs> my, you can cut this out. My daughter's in here now. I just came in to get a yoga And you were actually being very quiet. Things our parents never said. <laughs> We've got a game. Things our parents never said. So I see her and she goes, because, and I turned around. Went, oh, my God. And we exchanged numbers and I met her for a coffee in Cafe Nero the following week. And I said, I thought you were a slag. Were you, <laughs> were you, um, were you having a thing with, um, I can't remember his name, Carl, the manager. She goes, God, no. And I said, but the way you used to dress and that. She goes, oh, they made me dress like that. I was, you know, it was it was glamour. It was the 80s. She said, I thought you were shagging anything. I said, no, I just wanted to come on. And all we were really was just two kids trying to um, earn a bit of extra money. And it's she funny, was the nicest, it? you know, shorn of all that stuff. She's still very, you know, very nice looking, but just sort of demure and yeah. just something to do to earn a little extra money. Benefit and I think, of, yeah. you know, I think there's a lot of that. 30 uh, years had allowed the personas to drop. Yeah. And yeah, it, it is. A, but I, I suppose, I mean, I it, it, there came a point where, again, I didn't really like, I wasn't very good at mixing. I wasn't what do you mean, like the mixing not with people, but the transition? Oh, no, mixing, I'm all right with people, no, the track to track. Uh, I, I think how I would, uh, cue one record into another. After a while, you knew what followed that. If you if you got on with that, you're getting with that. Uh, but it's usually records that were sort of in the same key. This sounds so pretentious because I'm not a musician, but you could sort of feel it on the back of your throat that that one would go well into that one. I do but know what you mean by that. That's a good instinct. And I was yeah, that was it, what... it was um it was strange. It was um uh, technical proficiency, if you like, supplanted musical knowledge. So all this beat mixing, hot mixing, slip cueing, holding a bend, bend, blend, cutting, 
doing sort of stops and spin backs. I mean, there was a there was a guy who was uh, who's who came down the club once uh, called Les Adams who tried to show me how to do it, but I'm so clumsy, and I wasn't that bothered. Um, it became it became more of a it became work rather than play once you had to be really good at that. I mean, uh, part of it is was I was no good at it, but the other thing was I didn't want to be that good at it because what people often used to do would because um, we had very speed decks, so you could. You know, you could, I could do it a little bit when one was really obvious. And, and if you stop, I mean, you don't play Gary Glitter anymore. <laughs> but a, a good wedding one was come on Eileen, Dexy's Midnight, come on, come on. And then it stops. And then you just take that down and bang Gary Glitter, come on, come. It was perfect. It sounded like the same record. So you could do that now and again. But very often, uh, people would put, in order to create a mix or to get the blend, they put in a track that wasn't that good but it just happened to fit uh rhythmically yes so that's that's actually interesting uh insofar as then versus now it sounds as if certainly what you brought to the table and maybe what djing was as such at one point was the art of good curation selecting the right records which is why you say you get there you survey the landscape you try some stuff out and maybe not you try another one out this is what they're into and you keep going down that uh, rabbit's warren now because, uh, yeah, I just got some Hercules decks for the first time and it comes with this sort of onla- online course that some twerp has recorded himself at home telling you how to do it. Oh, and wow. um, it's funny because, actually, it's good, great sales technique because they go, um, here's your, you know, like, rede- your card to redeem this... Uh, what would you call this, this tutorial series? And you go on and it goes, ah, it would have been $150, but you've typed this code in. It's now free to watch some guy called Jose or something with a trilby go, all right, so uh, we're going to teach you how to mix. And because like you said, it's not about curation anymore. You bring your whole playlist from start to finish, pre-done, everything. It's as if it's all about getting that perfect mix and getting no, those no. beats to be perfect. It's a skill and it's um, it, it's sort of, it's slightly, I mean, it's very skillful. And I'm not saying if it's, you know, there's some people who do it brilliant. There was a DJ back in the day called Froggy and Froggy um, sort of pioneered that sort of stuff and he was just brilliant at it. Uh, and there's another guy called DJ Harvey. I'd also go, I'd go and see people to see what they were doing. Uh, Chris Hill was another. Chris Hill was a brilliant showman. Uh, and Norman Jay. Uh, Norman Jay was a curator more than a mixer. He's still going. Uh, he used to have a thing called Shake and Finger Pop. And, I, you know, I, I used to go out and I used to go out and join it because I enjoyed it so much. That's how I got into doing it. But no, the, the, the mixing thing and, and the, the sort of acid house scene, apparently, because I don't take drugs, apparently I'd have really enjoyed it if I took pills. But, I, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't that bothered with it. So... Um, no, it, it was about, and there's one time I was, <laughs> there was this uh, sort of very 80s cocktail bar that, that had a really good sound system. I can't remember what it was called. It was over in Harrow. Um, and on Sunday night, they had a really good soul session and the DJ was there and it was all the latest, you know, stuff. And I thought, well, I haven't got this. And I took a real chance. Uh, and I thought, everyone's rammed in there anyway. They can't... Um, they can't really dance. You couldn't dance. You weren't supposed to. He was just providing the music and it was all the best, the latest um, import soul stuff. And I thought, I can't compete with this. And I had, uh, I was supposed to be there for two weeks and I had, um, oh, I just brought a load of 
novelty records. Not not all of them. But I saw a mouse where there on the stair. And and Tom Jones before he was, you know, it's not unusual. And I thought, I'm gonna do this. And I thought, I'm either gonna get booed off and lynched, or they're going to love it. This was pre-karaoke and they loved it. And after that, I think he had to go out and buy Engelbert Humperdinck's greatest hits and <laughs> Tom Jones and all, all those sorts of records. Uh, I mean, yeah, sometimes you, uh, the, the nicest, the, the, play, the time I really enjoyed it was um, when record shops, just peak record shop uh, in the 90s, there was um, the Virgin Megastore in Oxford Street, which was gigantic. And I had to sit in there for a couple of weeks. And it was the it was honestly the best job. And can you imagine this? Uh, you first of all, first half hour, you go around the Virgin Megastore and take any CD you want, pile them all up, and um, just play them. <laughs> and what a lot of them did because they wanted to be professional DJs, and I didn't. They'd play the top forty. There was a guy called Danny Petroni, and Danny Petroni was very very professional. And he ended up on Heart, I think he did. Uh, whereas I thought they've got every CD in the world here. Why don't I just play some interesting stuff and just say, and this is from a compilation called Blah, Blah, Blah. And when I was to, and there was a lovely guy called Jeff, Jiff, he was a Kiwi, and Jiff would be dancing in the aisles with um, when I used to play. And I, was, I came back for the last time, and I, I, I was doing what I normally did, and this little Scottish fella burst into my place, because it was a like, proper studio, and he goes, what the hell do you think you're doing? And I said, sorry, I said, I'm just playing records. He goes, um, we've got this on promotion, that on promotion. He gave me Phil Collins' greatest hits or Madonna or whatever it was. You're to play this. And I thought, and I don't know why I did it. Um, I just took my headphones off and I don't, I said, I'll tell you what, sweetheart. <laughs> I don't know why I've, never called, I've never called anyone sweetheart before or since. Tell you what, sweetheart, you do it yourself. <laughs> I don't need your money. And, and then you think uh, that's when the boring people took over. Yeah, it, it was sort of indicative. Uh, I, I knew what the consumers wanted. I knew that they needed to, I felt I did anyway, uh, see the breadth of stock that they had in the Virgin Megastore. And, and quite often people would say, what's this? Where do I get that? Or you'll find that over there. And I thought it was a good thing to do, but he just wanted the ones they had on special offer, you know, two CDs for 10 quid or whatever. And I'm guessing also this was back in the day when, you know, a record label's plugging and PR department would hand, you know, hand over a fair bit of cash to Virgin to make sure this is on the front. Oh, they're, they're, do you know, you suddenly, I'm so naive, you're probably absolutely right. I'm not, I used to be on a lot of mailing lists, so I used to get a lot of records sent to me, but literally 95% of them were shit, you know. They really were. Uh, record Shack were good because they, 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 they catered for the gay community. I, I loved a gay disco. Because um, they just tended to be really good. Once I'd begin again, times were uh, not as enlightened as they are now. So the sight of two guys dancing together or kissing was. <gasps> but once you've got over, once you've seen it once, you it. And they were just lovely people. Um, they didn't fight. They danced all the time. They were stylish. And I always used to look when Time Out was a proper magazine. I, I'd always have a look at the gay section because nine times out of ten, um, what they were into. Six months later, would be more main, mainstream, particularly yeah. music, particularly sort of high energy, that sort of stuff. Uh, but th I think there just came a point when I was not earning a fortune, but I would, I, I didn't need, I literally needed that DJ money to survive, or I'd have had to go move home with my mum and dad. And that I'd, I'd done it for about ten years, and. Quite simply, you are fitter, physically fitter, 
look, just think of a footballer at 25 than you are at 35. So the time I'm 35, or that, you know, I'm married, I've got a child, and I come in one night about two o'clock and he woke up for a feed about five. I thought, you've done your last disco, but I've got a couple more to do. Uh, and I'm doing this wedding again. Very nice people, but I don't, it's more of a Southern thing. It's more of a home county, Surrey, rugby club types. Or, and and um, it was a very sort of rugby club wedding and the bride, the son of the bride, the groom <laughs> and the best man were rugby types. And one of them came over to me perfectly nice and said, I think the lads are ready for a bit of Bruce Springsteen. And I thought, I never want to do this again as long as I live. That was the moment that tipped it. That was, that was it. Yeah, little thing. Nice man. Uh, was unreasonable. I put on his Bruce, Bruce Springsteen and the lads did all their rugby club dance to Dancing in the Dark. And I thought, this is your swan song. You ain't doing this anymore. And, uh, and I never did. Uh, just because... Yeah, there comes a point. I never took it that seriously. Uh, I, I did enjoy it. It was really interesting. Uh, but it's like that's it. So it's it, you hit this. Uh, you hit upon before that it was a hobby and it was always something you did because you enjoyed it and it was a great time. And it sounds like there's a little moment where maybe you've not put your finger on every aspect of it, but that moment, with Bruce Springsteen, everything came together and you hated every single thing. Every, that I hated them all. I didn't want to be there. I mean, I returned to it only... Um, I didn't even return to it. Uh, there was a... You get to an age where you call anyone under 60 a girl. And this girl, I'd done her wedding the first time, and it was her second wedding. And she said, uh, would you do that? I said, I haven't got the gear anymore, because I hadn't. Uh, I, the decks had just become too big. and too, I wish I'd kept them, actually. They weren't hugely expensive. There was a couple of old engineers that used to work at the BBC, and they, they used to build them for you. And I... Mono, and I had two old-fashioned BSR decks that were really solid that you could jump up and down, you know, and 200 watt amps. So if one blew, you still had another one, like an aeroplane. So it was good, no, uh, but it, it become old. It'd been used to death. And I said, I haven't got them anymore. It's all on. She goes, oh, it doesn't worry. Just hire the gear and um, we'll pay for it and blah, blah, blah. Because I'm so vain, and I don't mean physically vain, but like all creatives, professionally vain. So vain and easily flattered. I went, um, yeah, all right, I'll do it. So my son, who's about 13 at the time by now, and done one for about 13 years, said, can I come with you? I've never seen you do that. I said, um, yeah, go on in. Yeah, come along. It's a wedding. You'll enjoy it. Good job he came with me. Because the, I had lights, these big lights on my deck, and 12-inch um, singles. I virtually do it with my eyes closed. They were big labels. I could just see it. I couldn't see anything. <laughs> Say it was Michael Jackson Thriller. I'd go, Jack. Can you find Thriller on there? And um, he'd find it and he'd put it on and queue it up. Because, you know, kids can just do that. In the end, admittedly, I was choosing all the tracks because I'd done it so many times. But he was playing them and I, they, they were looking at this child prodigy, DJ, who <laughs> was 13, and his old dad, who was... Um, <laughs> just handing the records. And then you had and that moment very, where, like, you kind of fl fl it flashes and becomes real and you're like, hang on a minute. Once I was the DJ. Probably could have managed, but it would have been really uncomfortable. And, yeah. and it, it went where it was. And the only other time, going more from CDs, is, is what you're talking about, the, um, the laptop thing. I'm at my mate's, um, my mate Pete. Uh, and again, I've done his wedding. And he said, drop in. And I've been somewhere. This was only just before Christmas, before we went into lockdown. Uh, it, it's my daughter's 21st. Drop in. 
And I thought, actually, I could. It was in Wembley, and I was, I was coming home. I thought, actually, I could. Okay, we'll take sort of 10 minutes out of my way to go and see Pete. I haven't seen him for years. So I go there, and the DJ's got all the stuff. And he's saying, he goes, why don't you have a go? I said, fuck, oh, I don't know how to do this. He goes, go on. And um, so I went over to the DJ, and he showed me. It's quite easy to work, and I saw what he got. And a lot of them were the stuff I used to play in the 80s and 90s. So um, I said, go on in. And I, I, I just got on the mic, and I just said, Hello, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry, young people. I'm just having a quick go at this. Um, I don't know any new records, but I do, I do know old ones like this. Boom! So we start, wham, jitterbug. <laughs> Brilliant. And the parents went mental because it was already an item on the floor doing oops upside your head item. And the best thing about it was the kids could not believe their parents who in their 40s and 50s were behaving like this. And then the kids joined in as well. And, it, and, and I thought, no, I still, I do love doing this. I mean, this is a good bit of showing off for about 40 minutes. I don't want to do it ever again. And I was able to go, yeah, thank you very much. Big hug off Pete when we were still allowed to hug each other. And um, that's probably the last time I'll ever do it. Uh, so that's probably, um, that's probably far too much rambling and nothing to do with, um, nothing to do with advertising, but... <laughs>